God's word in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they'd seen, when it rose before them, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. In late 1943, Erwin Rommel, the famous World War II German general, was reassigned to inspect and reinforce German defenses along the coast of France. Nazi propaganda had told that the coast was impenetrable, that nothing could come on in an attack. But Rommel found the defenses seriously lacking. Thus, he began flooding lowlands. He added mines, barbed wire, and steel girders on the beaches. And one major advantage he knew that they had was that often there was inclement weather along the coast. Thus, in June 1944, as predictions said of two weeks of bad weather, and having been away for some time, and his wife's birthday being on June 6th, Rommel decided, I'm going to go home and celebrate her birthday with her. So on June 5th, with shoes he recently purchased from Paris, he left the front to go be with his wife and celebrate her birthday because everything was taken care of. Everything was under control. Well, that is what he thought. But better weather detecting services for the Allies had foreseen clear weather on June 6th. And while Rommel celebrated his wife's birthday, the Allied invasion began. Now, sadly, we can be so close to something, and yet, like Rommel, completely miss it. You can miss the most important things when you're actually right there beside it, maybe even thinking you made all the right preparations for it. Well, this morning... In this beautiful passage, we're going to see three things. First, in the first two verses, we see that the star guides these people to the king. Then we're going to see that scripture verifies who the king is. And then lastly, we see three separate responses to the king. In verse 1, though, we're just told that during Herod's rule, during his reign, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Magi came from the east. Now, we're not told how long this was after Jesus' birth, but considering the Magi ask, where is the king? Not, where will the king be born? And as we'll see other things, most likely it was some 
time after Jesus' birth. And to understand this passage, we really have to know who Herod is. Herod was a crafty, self-serving, opportunistic, paranoid, and cruel ruler. Now, not everything he did was cruel, for during a long famine, he actually sold royal furniture of gold and other implements, and he gave the money to feed the Jews, to give them seed for their land. Along with that, Herod spent lavishly to restore the beauty of the Jewish temple. However, Herod is mostly known for what Jesus called him, a fox. He had made his brother-in-law priest, high priest, trying to show little favoritism to the family. But when he saw how popular his brother-in-law was, he invited him to go swimming with him. Except Herod had planned for some other men to also come in and drown his brother-in-law. When his brother-in-law drowned, he then threw a massive funeral and wept many tears. He was very crafty. He was also very paranoid. During his reign, he was so paranoid of others wanting his throne that he killed three of his own sons, his own wife, and his mother-in-law. And so Herod is a very crafty and paranoid man. But we also hear these magi are called wise men from the east. Who are they? Well, tradition says their names are Gaspar, Melchior, and Belthazar. But we really have no sure way of knowing if that is true or if even there were three men. All we know for sure is that there are three gifts. We're never told whether that was from three magi or 30 magi or three magi with a multitude of attendants. Now, most people believe they were either Persian or Babylonian, most people thinking Persian. And as people have said, well, who were they? What were these magi? We've gotten a range of answers. They're magicians. They're philosophers. They're priests. They're stargazers. They were kings. And then you can find any kind of combination of those things. But what we clearly do know is they were Gentiles. They were scholarly. They were rich. And they traveled a long way because the star guided them. Now, many people have wondered, well, how could these people of the East known of this Jewish king who was born? How would they even know to be looking at the stars? Well, perhaps from Daniel having been taken into exile and being with them. Or perhaps from the prophecy of Balaam. In Numbers 24, 17, Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Seth. So what do the Magi do? They see the star in the east and they come. And where do they go? Well, where you would expect the king to be. They go to the capital. They go to Jerusalem. And they start asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? <coughs> Excuse me. Except the odd thing is no one seems to know anything. As they ask around, no one is aware that the king of the Jews has been born. And notice they didn't go first to Herod. He is a king over the Jews, but he is not the king of the Jews. And yet they have come. They've come because they've seen the star in the east and they want to worship him. I don't know about all of you, but I'm not a scientist. I almost failed my science course in college. I am definitely not an astronomer. If we could immediately go tonight and all look up at the sky, I could definitely find Orion's belt. I could maybe find the Big Dipper. And after that, I could tell you there's a lot of stars up there. 
That's a star. That's a star, and you probably go, well, that was a planet. Okay, it's up in the sky. I don't know a lot about stars. However, as with many of these things, there's a lot of questions. What is this star? Was it actually a planet? Was it a comet? It was a, I'm not sure, and you can spend a lot of time looking, but what do the facts in Matthew 2 tell us? They tell us that in some way, when they saw it in the east, they recognized this heavenly being as something showing that the king of kings had come, the king of the Jews. As well, as we get to verse 9, we see that it shone again and went and stood in some way over the house where they were staying. So this is clearly not a normal star. Again, I'm no scientist, but a star is burning gas. Putting burning gas over any house is going to consume it. So what is this star? Well, we don't ultimately know. But we know that it led the Magi to this place. Basically, this star is functioning the way all stars are supposed to function. Psalm 148 calls us to praise God, and it declares in verse 3, Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. This star, in a unique way, is doing what all stars are called to do in a general way. Declare God's praise. And this star led them to the king. And God's creation has done this for many people. Maybe not with a star, but there have been other things that have led them to reflect and go, I'm being led to the fact that there is a being, a power, that I'm not alone in this universe. Maybe they've overlooked a beautiful canyon or gone to the mountains or been overwhelmed in the midst of a storm and they've said something, someone is there. You may have heard of Francis Collins. He is a scientist who led the Human Genome Project and then after that, he's now the director of the National Institute of Health. He's also a believer and he writes this. He says, there are 15 constants in the universe. The gravitational constants, Various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc. have precise values. If any one of these constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would be no galaxies, stars, or planets, or people. And Collins' point is, this universe is so precise, it couldn't have just happened. Some intelligent being had to guide this precision. And yet just looking at the universe, just seeing a star in the east isn't enough because we see next that they needed to have scripture as we need scripture to verify the king. We see that in verses 3 through 6. We need specific revelation along with this general revelation. And in verse 3, you see from Herod exactly what you would expect from a king who's always paranoid of people trying to take his throne. He's troubled. What is this you're saying? People are coming from another country and saying there's a new king here? And what are the people going to think? Because they've known what Herod has done when he's thought someone is going to take over the throne. They're troubled as well. And what do they all do? They turn to Scripture. Now, you may have noticed something in the middle of verse 4. The Magi have come and said they're looking for the king of the Jews. But then in verse 4, they ask, where the Christ? 
was to be born. They immediately recognized that the king of the Jews is also the Messiah. That's what Christ is, the anointed one. The two go hand in hand. The Messiah, the anointed one of God, was also the king of Israel. A specific, real, flesh and blood child would be born who is king of the Jews. And what do they do? Well, they quote Micah 5, the passage we examined last week. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And as we saw last week, this promise was given in the midst of a siege as Jerusalem was thinking there's no hope. The promise of this child was given. A promise of a child in the line of David, but also one who is the ancient of days. A promise of a son of David, promise of the son of God, promise of the incarnation, the hope of Israel. And we see here in Matthew, not just the hope of Israel, but the hope of all, because magi from the east have come. And Micah showed us, look, you can have hope in this king who's coming, for his reign is going to be different in three ways. We saw last week, he's going to lead his people as a shepherd. In essence, he'll protect them, he'll care for them, and as the good shepherd, he'll lay down his life for them. Second, his reign will bring security because it'll be for the entire earth, not just Jerusalem. And we even see this here because Magi are coming from the east. The whole globe finds their hope in him. And third, he will be their peace. We saw that comes from the Hebrew shalom, meaning wholeness. There will not just be subjective feelings of harmony, but a complete restoration and wholeness in life. No more sickness, pain, sorrow, or death anymore. And thus in Micah's day, they could find hope in the midst of despair because one is coming who would make the world right with God. The Messiah, the King of Judah, who is born in Bethlehem. And now, 700 years later, the promise is being fulfilled. And so they can point to Micah, excuse <coughs> me, showing that this is true. And thus, while stars and creation, they generally point to God, Scripture gives us specific relation of revelation of who God is and how he'll act. And to trust God, to see that his word guides us to him is not blind faith it's not a secular trust we trust it because we're his sheep and we hear his voice and we see the authentications of it consider just this chapter here matthew 2 three incredible prophecies made hundreds of years in advance that were made true first over 700 years before this it was prophesied where this child would be born. So just think about that. You're alive and you say, all right, in 2700, I'm going to have a descendant and they're going to be born in Wichita Falls. Okay, well, you might go, well, I mean, they didn't travel as much back then. They got one right. Big deal. But remember, even though they were less mobile, the Jews were never in the land of Israel that long. They had been in Egypt. They had been taken to exile. And yet they're back in Bethlehem. Not just in Bethlehem. 
his parents lived in another portion and needed a census to bring them. Okay, a skeptic says, okay, so one prophecy. You could always line something up. But notice verse 15 of the chapter of Matthew 2 where it says how Herod gets angry and Joseph is warned to flee. And he goes to Egypt and Matthew 2.15 says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. It was one thing to get all of Israel back from exile into the nation, the land of Israel, so the prophecy of the child being born in Bethlehem could be fulfilled. But now how are you going to get them all back out? God oversaw this hundreds of years in advance. He predicted it. This is nothing no human could do. Or look down third in verses 22 through 23. Because we see a third prophecy just about place. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived there in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So three different prophecies, about three different places this child would come from, given hundreds of years in advance. No man could invent all of this. God's word is true. And we see it through the prophecies. And we could sit here and go prophecy after prophecy after prophecy for hours, because there's hundreds of them, all pointing to only something, a divine, the divine being could tell us and so science points to the baby points to christ scripture points to christ and yet sadly we see different responses to the king we see that in verses 7 through 12 the first response we see is adoration this is the one that's right bold in the passage because this is the magi after they hear that herod supposedly wants to worship the star appears again, and they go to Bethlehem. And there, they find the child. Now, to put a little bit of this together for you, in Luke chapter 2, we know, excuse <coughs> me, after the birth of Jesus, after the days of purification, Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem, had him circumcised, and they gave the poor person's gift. If the Magi had already come, they would have been able to give a richer gift. And so, it seems most likely that Jesus was born in the stable, in the manger. Then they went to Jerusalem, and now they have been able to secure a home. Maybe with relatives, we don't know. But nonetheless, as you see the various reenactments, as you look at the various nativity scenes, and you see a baby in a manger with three magi behind it, that is not most likely what happened. Now, we don't have to... <laughs> that's not real. We don't need to be scoffers or always have to point everyone's errors out. But we can realize that sadly, a lot of tradition often gets built up that isn't based on God's word. The Magi were real. They did come. But Jesus could have been anywhere up to two years old because Herod wanted to know exactly how old, when was this that you saw the star? And so the child is there. And the men, they come and they get to have their mission accomplished. And so verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Did you notice the quadruple explosion of joy? It could have said, 
they rejoiced. Moses, for emphasis, could have said, they rejoiced exceedingly. To show they are bursting, jumping up and down Christmas glee, he could have said, they rejoiced with joy. Yet, in order to show that there has never been anywhere given to anyone anything better, (coughs) he reports, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. A quadruple explosion of joy. More than that, when they fall, find the child, they fall down and worship him. Now just consider this. No one in Jerusalem knew who this child was. They get to Bethlehem, and it doesn't say, and they got in the queue, they got their number, because there were so many people lined up to see the child. They came probably to a nondescript house, just like every other house. They came in to see a woman and her husband who looked pretty plain, like all the other Bethlehem people. And they see a child. Did it have a halo around its head? No. Did he no crying make? No, he cried. And yet God gave them eyes of faith to realize in this manger is not any ordinary baby. This is the king of kings. And so what do they do? They bow down in worship. The Western culture, we have so emphasized the rights and dignity of the individual that we would be ashamed, we would be horrified to think I should bow down with my face to the ground to anyone. Never. Show words of respect. Sure, we, we should show respect to some people. Treat some people differently. Maybe we should do that. Bow before anyone? Never. We're told to be loyal to ourselves. No one has any authority over me. And if you listen clearly enough, for many people, they even mean God. And yet these wise men are much wiser than us. They realize this is just not any ordinary baby. This is the king of kings, who is both David and God's son. This child deserved, in fact, this child demanded full submission and respect. Their actions could illustrate in no better way how they should respond to him but to bow. And I wonder if for many people in the U.S., many people who profess, oh yeah, when they take the census, when they take out a test, check Christian if this might be the actual stumbling block. I've made some mistakes. I need someone to make me better. Yes, sure, I'll admit I sinned. I need a Savior. I'm a Christian. I'm not an atheist. I need to bow before Christ? No way. I'm not doing that. And yet that's what true worship, true following of God, true faith looks like, that we bow before Him, that we realize who He is. And they show this by submitting to him, by bowing. And then they give him these treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, while we cannot with definite clarity say this is exactly the reasons I gave this gift, these gifts, I think we can clearly see, based on how they were commonly used, what these gifts are probably signifying. Gold. Even today, If you do the best in the best in the Olympics, you don't get bronze, you don't get silver, you get gold. It goes to the best. 
and not just the best in their culture, the king wore a crown of gold. <coughs> the crown is pointing that this is royalty. This is not just anyone. This is the king. Frankincense. It's an enjoyable smelling fragrance that was used in the offerings and the sacrifices at the temple. One man said, it well, he said, the gift of frankincense to the Christ child was symbolic of his willingness to become a sacrifice, wholly giving himself up, analogous to an offering to God. Myrrh. When did they use myrrh in their culture? Another fragrance. When they buried people. Now, if there's ever an odd gift to give, I'm sure some of you women have been at baby showers where you just go, whoa, that was a little weird. Hey, can I give your son a casket? I know he's so cute, but could I give him this cute little casket? He'll need it one day. Surely being given myrrh had to raise an eyebrow by Mary and Joseph, and yet what was it pointing to? That the child was born to die. It was pointing to the fact that he's the Christ. And what does it say about the Christ in Isaiah 53, 6-8? That the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silence, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he would be cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? The myrrh was given because this child was born to die. Thus the ancient church father, Origen, rightly said, gold as to a king, myrrh as to one who is mortal and born to die, and incense as an offering to God. And yet, as I was reflecting, I thought, what do the magi get from these gifts? You know, most people live in a, I'll give you something because then I get something back. But the Magi give these gifts, and then what do they do? They leave, and they go uh, almost a thousand miles away. What can an earthly baby ever give them back? Nothing. And yet they were given the greatest gift, because God gave them eyes to see what is truly worth adoration. Now they would travel 500 miles, and they would travel 500 more just to be the magi who would fall down at the king with their face to the floor. And you could even ask yourself, would I be the type of person who would travel 500 miles? And then you would travel 500 more just to bow down with your face at the king, to the king on the floor? That's what they were given eyes to see that this was the best gift they could ever have, to have eyes of adoration for the king of kings. This is what they're being given. They're not being given anything tangible, but they're being given the best thing ever. And yet the story doesn't end there because God gave them the star. He gave them scripture. Now he gives them a dream and he tells them, do not go back to Herod. Do not go back through Jerusalem. Go another way. And what do they do? They obey. And really, I think we see five wonderful aspects 
of how we should respond to God from the Magi's adoration. First, they were eagerly looking forward to God's promises because they believed them. And so, second, since they were looking forward to the child's coming, when they see the evidence, they go. And they look for this child to come. And third, what do they do? They humble themselves. They submitted to this child for they recognized who he was and what he came to do. Thus forth, this led to deep joy, concrete obedience of giving to this child. And lastly, this changed their relationships on earth because no longer do they obey men. Herod told them, come back to me when you're done. But rather than submitting to Herod, they obeyed God rather than men. These men show us what true adoration of God looks like. It's not just intellectual affirmation. It's not just an emotional response. It's not just concrete actions of allegiance. It's a love that flows heart, soul, mind, strength, that has all of those intellectual affirmation, emotional delight, actions of allegiance. And they're calling out to us, Oh, come, let us adore this newborn king. And yet, Sadly, that's not the only response. The second response we actually don't see. And that's because it's between the lines, and it's the apathetic response. And I, I guess in the 38 years of the Christmas story before this, I just missed this. But this week, as I was reading, as preparing it, hit me as people talked about this. What did the people in Jerusalem do when they were asked where this child would be born? They didn't say, well, we don't know. Oh, it's in Micah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then what did they do? Nothing. They wouldn't even walk five miles down to Bethlehem and go, we should check this out. Like, these people from the east came, and it's only five miles to Bethlehem. What do we got to do? We could go down there. Now, these are the same people who, when Jesus is an adult, will walk over 50 miles just to question him and say, why do you not wash your hands like the traditions say you should do. So they will walk when it's important, but they won't walk five miles. Rommel, the German general, prepared for months, but missed the D-Day invasion. The religious leaders studied all their life, and yet they missed the very thing they were supposed to be studying about. They knew all the right answers, and they perhaps even were the type who scoffed and go, We're not those religious scholars who say you don't believe the text. It means what it says. It's really a child coming. They knew their Bible. They knew their theology, yet it did not matter. They didn't come with the Magi, and we hear nothing else. They should have been stirred up with great joy, and yet all we get is, eh. And I would suspect that the next Sabbath they were in the temple, praising God, calling out for God to restore the nation of Israel. We know what to do. We know how to worship God, and yet their heart was not in it. They have the enthusiasm that many five-year-olds will have in three days as they open up a package of black socks. Oh, Grandma, thank you. What I've always wanted Is there a matching pair of underoos in the next box? Woo, can't wait. They have no excitement at all. 
They know what they should do. Yes, I should tell Grandma, thank you. I should say, this is what Scripture says, but they are basically apathetic. And sad that we can fall prey to the same religious externalism, to being knowing, hey, what's the answer to that Bible question? We know right where to find it. We can give you the answer. And yet, our hearts have little to no love for God. Though we maybe never voice it, our actions show that we're trying to do the bare minimum to make sure God's okay with us, but we don't have any love for Him. A sad reality is you can know all the facts of Christmas and still miss it. Well, there's a third response, and that is from Herod, because he's not adoring, he's not apathetic, he's apoplectic. You know, Christmas has many gifts. One gift is you can either learn a new vocabulary word or review one you learned a long time ago. What's it mean to be apoplectic? Well, it comes from the exact same word for when you have a stroke, an apoplexy. It's the same word because it's when blood rushes up. You know, when someone is angry, red in the face. Herod has this response, though we don't see it at first. At, verse, at first, in verses 7 through 8, Herod is the cunning fox that Jesus calls him because he's saying, oh, please go search diligently. I also want to come worship this child. He will, yet, he only wants to know so he can go destroy him. You know, he's paranoid. And we could read on in chapter 2 of verse 16 how he will go and destroy every two-year-old male and younger in apoplectic rage because no one will take his throne from him. And yet this is folly. He, we know historically, is almost 70 years old at this time. He's not even going to live for another year. You know, you would think that someone would realize, okay, I'm 69, 70, this is a child. Probably not going to live that much longer. What is this child really going to do to me? And yet, sin blinds us. It blinds us to the fact that we're going to have to give an account. And in our sinful blindness, we think what really matters is me and what matters is right now. Right now I want control and this baby might take it from me. And yet God knows that what we need can only be given through his son. Our only hope is not to escape Herod's wrath, but to escape the wrath we deserve from God. And yet that's why God sends Jesus in love as a baby so he can restore God's kingdom by dying to conquer sin and death. That he might be our substitute who needs myrrh to cover up the stench of death. And so which of these are you? Adoring? Apathetic? Apoplectic? Your, your greatest need was fulfilled at Christmas for the only one of worthy of worship came your needs are greater than your health your family getting together the right christmas present god made you for eternity you were made for god and your heart will be restless until it rests in him and however eternity is determined by what we worship now i don't just mean where you show up once a week what box you check, but what your heart truly adores. And the only being who needed nothing, he came in a state where he needed everything. 
He needed to be fed, moved, and changed. The vocal cords that called the universe into existence had to learn to coo, to babble, and to talk. The fingers that set the stars in place, even the star that would lead the wise men to him, had to learn how to grasp a mother's hand. The one who used to walk and talk in the garden had to learn how to walk and talk on earth. Well, why? Because we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And we've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We have a great need and we may not even realize it. We need to adore God. You know, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our gifts, our times, our talent. He is eternally self-sufficient. Yet we need him. And like the Magi, in our worship, we should joyfully respond by adoring and giving our gifts, time, and talent. You know, if we could go back the 2,000 and 20, 30 years, and we are in that Jerusalem conversation, all three responses look the same. Initially, the religious leaders, Herod, the Magi, they all look the same. Oh, the answer's right here. The child's going to be born in Bethlehem. But what did they do once they knew the verse, once the service was over? Some said, okay, we knew the answer. We can go home now. Some said, I know the answer, and I have to make sure it doesn't affect me because I want control. And others said, we know the answer, and we must search it out because he is the one that life is about. You know, on Resurrection Sunday, I mentioned this following story, and I'll end with it here because I think it fits very well. Eugene Weingarten wrote on Friday, January 12, 2007, at 7.51 in the morning, a fairly nondescript young man in jeans and a long-sleeved T-shirt opened a violin case at a train metro station in Washington, D.C. He threw a couple dollars in the case and began to play. Over the course of the next 43 minutes, he performed six pieces and 1,097 people passed by. In the time that he played, seven people stopped what they were doing to hang around and take in the performance, at least for a minute. 27 gave money, most of them on the run, for a total of $32 and change. That leaves the 1,070 people who hurried by, oblivious, many only three feet away, few even turning to look. What they were oblivious to was that the man playing was Josh Bell, the world-renowned violinist, playing with all of his heart six of the greatest classical pieces of all time on his $3.5 million Stradivari violin. However, barely anyone even noticed. Only one person completely stopped and took it all in. Why was it that excellence and beauty were right there before them and they did not notice? Josh Bell himself found it odd. Reflecting later, he said, it was a strange feeling that people were actually, uh, the word doesn't come easily, ignoring me. The only person who did stop and listen said, it was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell was staying there playing at rush hour, and people were not stopping and not even looking, and some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters! The greatness 
of all greatness, the greatest being of all, God himself has come down. He came in the manger and some of us are, here's a quarter. Oh, I'm in a rush. I'll check you out on the way home. Oh, I'd love to focus on what you're doing, but really, I got an important meeting. I got an important relationship. And in our rush, we miss what is right there before us. Are you missing Christmas? And like Rommel, you can be right there. You can make all the preparations. You have everything ready. You got the presents. You have the Christmas Eve service. We're there. Check. We got everything. And yet your heart is anywhere else. May we, like the Magi, not just know the right answers. May we not just be in the right place. May we come and may our hearts and our lives adore him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we not miss you, the greatest of all things, as we hunt, sadly, for the good but not great things that you've given us. Because you are the greatest. Oh Lord, may our joy, our hope, our adoration be in you and you alone. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing together.